Welcome to the In the Oil Patch radio show, broadcasting from the SR Trident studio. SR Trident, where safety is a culture, not just a word. In the Oil Patch radio show with Kimball Auto is where you will hear the latest in the oil, gas, and energy industry from a wide variety of industry experts, elected officials, and more, right here on In the Oil Patch radio show. And welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and today we have a great show lined up for you. We will be joined by the CEO of CNX Resources, Nick DeLillis. But before we bring on Nick, I'd like to tell you about the latest issue of Shell Magazine. The cover story is Heidi Gill, the CEO of Urban Solutions. What an amazing company, and she's doing amazing things, her and her company in Colorado. Be sure to visit shale, S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com to read all about Heidi and Urban Solutions. I'd also like to tell you about a new date set for our State of Energy with Shell Magazine 2022 that is coming to the Houston Club downtown on April 21st, starting at 11.30 a.m. The keynote speaker will be the chairman of the Texas Railroad Commission, Wayne Christian, as well as featured moderator, the CEO of the Port of Corpus Christi, Sean Strawbridge. The panelists will include Mike Howard, CEO of Howard Energy Partners, Phil Anderson, Senior Vice President of Liquid Pipeline for Enbridge, and Bruce Fullenweider, Vice President of Argus Media. For tickets on State of Energy Luncheon in Houston on April 21st, please see, please go to shellmagticketleap.com backslash state of energy. That's shellmag.ticketleap.com dot com backslash state of energy and we will see you there and now it's time to bring on my co-host and editor of shell magazine david blackman david welcome to this week's in the oil patch radio show hey it's another beautiful day in the oil patch it sure is but i sure wish that the mountain cedar here in texas would relax (laughs) just a little bit because me too but at least i sound like a, a woman again i mean there was a period of time i think i sounded like a man it was so so difficult to speak and talk um Let's start off uh, with our favorite topic. Of course, it's oil and gas prices. So uh, this uh, constant upward pressure on crude pricing, what can you tell our listeners to expect when they go to fill up their gas pumps in the next coming weeks and months? Are we going to see more of the same? Does it increase? Does it decrease? I don't think it decreases, but I was just saying how much of it is really being caused by what's happening with uh, the potential of Russia and Ukraine? Ukraine and of course this the Biden administration. Well, that's that's actually a good question. I mean, I think uh, yes, there, there's no doubt that geopolitics uh, play a significant role in driving oil prices, particularly upwards. And we have this situation in Europe, um, which is very unfortunate. But uh, there's no question that that has for for several months now put upwards prices or upwards pressure on the oil price and. And as we know, uh, as we've discussed many times, gasoline prices at the pump follow the crude price. And and I just think, um, I mean, there will be ups and downs, of course, along the way. But uh, just the general trend with, with oil prices this year is going to be for them to rise and keep rising, you know, throughout the year. I So what that means, of course, is going to be higher gasoline prices and and every year when we get to late March, early April, uh, we get into the season where refineries go down for periodic maintenance. Uh, a lot of refineries, they, they wait until winter's over and, and then, you know, take the refineries offline to, to do their annual 
maintenance and it's it's a week long process two weeks long and so that puts more upward pressure on gasoline prices it it increases transportation costs and and refining costs so uh prices are probably just going to continue to go up and they will increase significantly around that late march early april time frame and then we'll get into summer driving season a couple of months later and that will put upward pressure on prices and and you know it just it's this annual thing so um, i have no good news uh, where gas prices are concerned, they're just going to continue to get higher. Well, it might have a consequence that might be somewhat of good news if uh, in the November time period when it's time for us to go to the polls and vote, there might be some really dramatic changes as a result of some of these. Yeah, I think there occurring. will be. Yeah. Let's switch gears to talk about uh, big, big, big news. ExxonMobil announced this week that they are will move their headquarters from Las Colinas in Dallas or near Fort Worth. Um, which they've been there a very long time, to a campus outside of Houston uh, because they're restructuring the company to cut cost. But the question is, you know, I have is this is a very, very big uh, announcement. I mean, the entire company is changing. Why um, and what's the purpose of it? And, of course, how much of this is geared towards ExxonMobil is one that has really positioned themselves to be – lowering air admissions, net zero, they're on that path. How much of this restructuring is part of that? Well, it's huge. I mean, it's a huge story, as you said. And yes, there's no doubt that the restructuring is designed to, you know, uh, streamline the company's organization, make it more efficient and effective, meeting that net zero by 2050 pledge that we saw, what was that, two weeks ago now. Um, And so everything the company's doing uh, is geared towards that. And, and it's so classic of what we see from ExxonMobil uh, in contrast to some of the other European majors, you know, whose, whose announcements tend to be geared towards public relations, right? Mm-hmm. And, and messaging to the public, whereas Exxon is a company <laughs> that always has been run by engineers and so what we see Exxon do to get to the same place, you know, they're trying to get the same place that BP and Shell and others, Total, are trying to get, but it's all done in this, this highly regimented, organized engineering kind of process. And, and so it's not just geared towards public relations and media, it's, it's geared towards getting the job done. And it's engineers you know, doing engineering type of things is, is what I like to say about it. And it's just such a stark contrast with these other companies. And, and but it's it's a huge story. And of course, the news media is is mostly missing it. Uh, you know, they think it's just a typical reorg story and, and they don't understand the magnitude of the implications behind it. And, and, and that's too bad. But it's what we do at Shell Magazine better than anyone else in the media. That's right. We correct media that's not covering what's really accurately happening. And in the ExxonMobil, you know, when you look at if they they're going to try to get to net zero by 2050 and they're committed to this transition and lowering their carbon footprint, they're going to have to change and and what you said yeah. about it's not just a media PR stunt, streamlining the structure to enhance their effectiveness 
growth value and reduced costs sounds like a winning formula to me in the way that they have a plan how to get there and to diversify. So good for them. Let's uh, talk about an Obama federal judge ruled that a, that the recent huge Gulf of Mexico federal lease sale conducted by the uh, Interior Department was invalid. Yeah. Wait, how does that work? And <laughs> <laughs> talk about what's happening behind that decision and how it's going to impact the industry. Because, I mean, Mexico has done, a, 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 you know, some changes as well. So how does this mm-hmm. affect the whole the whole situation? Well, it's just another indication um, that this presidential administration, the Biden administration, does not put energy security as as one of its priorities. It's not a policy priority. Uh, This ruling by this Obama judge was highly coordinated between the Interior Department and Earth Justice and Wild Earth Guardians, the two radical environmental groups that brought the lawsuit uh, challenging the lease sale uh, on the grounds that the, what, four-year-long environmental review that had been done in advance of the lease sale was somehow invalid. And Interior knew this judge was disposed to rule in that manner, did no work to, to try to ensure that that its environmental review was, uh, you know, would meet this judge's standards and knew this ruling was going to come. So it was a, just a coordinated effort between the government and these these anti-development groups. And um, it's just typical of how this administration operates. So uh, we discussed, you and I discussed last week that uh, a couple of CEOs at a recent event talked about how they had literally no relationship at all with, with the Biden administration. Correct. And, and, and this is why, because the Biden administration doesn't want to have a relationship with anyone in the oil and gas industry. Its goal is to uh, force decline on our domestic oil and gas business. And uh, ruling this lease sale invalid just makes it far more difficult now for companies to commit major capital resources to developing oil and gas in the Gulf of Mexico. And and that's, you know, really the goal of this administration. And it's very destructive to our energy security. Right. And and let me ask you a question. What do you say to the the people who think, well, isn't that a good thing that they're actually decreasing it? But but those same CEOs last week when we talked about this also said how the Biden administration was literally energy illiterate. And when you think about that, okay, so folks, it's a little bit harder. It's a, you might think a little bit further than, oh, it's great, we're getting rid of fossil fuels, and you know the planet's going to be better, and we're going to have lower emissions, and we're going to live longer, and not so fast. Um, you do realize that we'll be dependent on other countries right now for our energy right. independence. You do realize you'll pay higher prices at the pump. You do realize that we are at a disadvantage in our national security, at a very big disadvantage. This is not a good place to be. You want to talk about it a little bit more than what I've just said, because I don't think people really understand how this is going to affect them in so many negative ways. No, they don't. And and if you if you believe that, then you just get ready to pay higher prices. And, and I'm not talking about and a more bit, wars, <laughs> a lot higher prices yeah. for energy. Yes. And yeah. to have your country, your sons and daughters sent over to Europe and other places to fight in wars over energy. Yep. It's it's a 
bizarre thought process that, that has when we yeah, have it's just a bad plan. And you know, it's also a matter of what difference does the planet really care where this is coming from? You know, if it's a pollutant uh, admissions, it doesn't matter if it's coming from China or India. So you got to wonder and question why is China, Russia, India really not changing any plans? It's not picking on them, but the United States is changing it. And mm-hmm. you know, you you really have people have to start understanding it's not just that simple like you think because other countries oh, are not. not doing anything to curtail their admissions or to clean up what they're doing or how they're doing it. The United States is the one who shows the way, who always is doing it greener and more efficiently because we have to. We're the model, and instead we're being shelved, and it's by this administration. It's just uh, not a good place to be. Well, David, that is all the time we have. When we return, we will be joined by our guest, Nick Dedellis, CEO of CNX Resources. You're listening to on the Trader Show, and we'll be right back. And we're back. You're listening to in the Old Patriot Radio Show. Our guest today is Nick Deolius, CEO of CNX Resources. Nick, welcome to In the Old Patriot Radio Show. Thanks, Kim. Well, Nick, you're, this is the first time that you've been on our show in the oil patch. So before we get started with hammering away some questions about what's going on in the Marcellus and Utica Basin, um, tell us, our listeners, a little bit about um, your background on yourself and, of course, CNX Resources as well as, um, you know, how did you start with the company? And just tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Uh, I'm a native Pittsburgher, so I grew up uh, in Pittsburgh and western Pennsylvania, lived there all my life. And um, when I was exiting high school, uh, I had this decision to make, like most young adults do, as to what, what career path you want to sort of embark upon. Right. And at the time, uh, my family is very blue collar, uh, typical within sort of the Western PA region background. We're basically working in steel mills, railroads, coal mines, that type of thing. And uh, being the first one to, to be able to contemplate going to college, sort of like chemistry, sort of like math, ended up um, going to Penn State and, and getting a degree in chemical engineering and got the degree after four years, uh, four hard years, but had no idea what a chemical engineer did. So uh, started to, to go about a job search. And at the time, there was a company in Pittsburgh. I, I desperately wanted to stay in Western Pennsylvania, being a native and having my family uh, still living here. And there was a company at the time known as Consolidation Coal Company, which became Consol Energy, uh, which ultimately became CNX Resources. It was looking for, lo and behold, a chemical engineer. So uh, I went and interviewed uh, with them and I was fortunate enough where uh, an offer came in and that was in 1990, um, right out of college. And I've been uh, with the company through its various twists and turns ever since over 31 years now. And there's been a lot of twists and turns. So you know, sort of flipping over to that question about the company side, uh, the legacy of CNX Resources goes back now over 155 plus years. Abraham Lincoln was the president uh, when we were first incorporated. And through that time, of course, the evolution went from predominantly or, or exclusively coal mining into things like longwell coal mining through the years, and then into, interestingly, coal bed methane alongside coal mining development. Because the, the innovation that occurred there was basically tying our desire and the need for us to efficiently uh, liberate methane from coal seams before we would mine the coal for safety reasons. We got very efficient at that, very good at that, 
And we made the decision in the 1980s to, instead of flaring or venting it, to actually start collecting it. And instead of just selling coal, we were also selling out coal and basically methane or natural gas. That ultimately coincided and dovetailed with what was occurring with just the innovation and disruptive technology with shale overall. And before you knew it, uh, it went from coal and coal, coal bed methane into coal, coal bed methane and shale development to the point uh, where a number of years ago we made the decision uh, to split the company and become CNX Resources, which is an exclusive Appalachian uh, shale producer, which still does uh, some coal bed methane development in Western Virginia. So that's that's sort of the, the history of CNX Resources in many ways, I think uh, Kim and David is interesting because it, it really mirrors what's happened with Appalachia. And Appalachia <laughs> is a, a proud legacy with, uh, with manufacturing and with energy. And then through the 70s and 80s, right, there was this, this great sort of chaos that ensued uh, where a lot of that went away, was offshored in the region from Western Pennsylvania to West Virginia. Western Virginia was just devastated, Eastern Ohio. And I went through that sort of as a very young uh, kid and, and young adult, wanted to stay in the region, was fortunate enough to get one of those few opportunities at the time. But then here comes this innovation and disruptive technology that completely resurrected, revamped, rebuilt that manufacturing energy base it didn't just allow me to stay and didn't just create sort of a CNX resources opportunity, but has effectively revitalized uh, the, the wider Appalachian region. Very nice. So, so Nick, you're, you're one of the biggest producers now in, in the Marcellus and Utica area. Um, I, I just wonder what the state of play is in your region. I mean, is this a healthy time for the industry now coming out of COVID? I know we had some growth last year. How do you see uh, the industry progressing this year in 2022? I think it goes back to fundamentals, right? Every year, every span of time is going to have its variables that are substantial and, and very difficult, if not impossible to predict. So there's always going to be twists and turns, but if you go back to the fundamentals and you look at what's happened um, within this basin over the past decade, it is unbelievable the reset, the step change level of improvement that you've seen in efficiency and well productivity. And when you look at the sort of cost uh, basis, it's tied to that and the rate of returns that are tied to that at different gas price assumptions. I think Appalachia via the Marcellus and Utica is clearly the low cost basin, not just within the United States, but frankly, uh, positioned very well across the globe. And you start thinking then about you know, some of the, so, so when I go from that cost sort of competitive position and I see what the potential could be there to fill demand and demand voids globally, not just you know, nationally or regionally, then I immediately pivot to, when I look to the future, what's going to happen with respect to capital investment, uh, with pipeline infrastructure, with processing infrastructure, with liquefied natural gas or LNG, so that basically this low cost, abundant, reliable supply in Appalachia can naturally, through market mechanisms, find its demand, not just within the United States, but, but the world over. And this plays into right all kinds of, not just downstream industries, uh, in, including manufacturing, but it also plays into, frankly, geopolitics that we're seeing today front and center. So it's, it is a massively impactful industry and sort of basin within the industry. We talk to our employees and to stakeholders, people within the region all the time about the fundamental why. Why do we do this? What do we bring to the table as an industry and as these endeavors? And really what we bring to the table is quality of life and security of that yeah, quality yeah. of life for people all over the world. And it's amazing, Nick. Um, how understated 
that is except by the industry. But also, you know, we're going to get ready to go to break, and we're going to get back on uh, the cash flow that you had brought up earlier. But, David, in all the years that we've been doing, uh, you've been doing Shell Magazine, and we've been on the radio, isn't it striking how many engineers, chemical engineers, petroleum engineers, oh, are sure. CEOs, and, and I would say to our listeners, you know, that there is a very uh, big appetite for engineers in the country. And if you have your heart set on being a CEO, you might want to consider <laughs> you might want to consider that occupation because every single one of them we've interviewed is either chemical yeah, just or about. petroleum, uh, mechanical uh, engineers. I guess they figure out the world's problems. Anyway, we do have to take a quick break. You're listening to on the Wall Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. SR Trident is a proud sponsor of State of Energy 2022 is coming to the Houston Club in downtown Houston on Thursday, April 21st, starting at 1130 a.m. The keynote speaker will be the chairman of the Texas Railroad Commission, Wayne Christian, and will feature moderator Sean Strawbridge, CEO of the Porta Corpus Christi, along with panelists Mike Howard, CEO of Howard Energy Partners, Phil Anderson, Senior VP of Liquid Pipelines Enbridge, and Bruce Fullen, Vice President of Argus Media. For tickets for the State of Energy Luncheon in Houston on April 21st, go to shalemag.ticketleap.com backslash state of energy. That's shalemag.ticketleap.com backslash state of energy. Sponsored in part by SR Trident. And we're back. You're listening to the Old Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Nick Deolius, CEO of CNX Resources. Nick, in, in an interview you and I did a couple of weeks ago, you uh, one of the most interesting aspects of it to me was um, uh, your description of your company not as being an oil and gas producer or a natural gas producer, but as being in the business of manufacturing free cash flow, which is... Uh, unique. I've never heard a CEO describe it that way. And I wanted to, to ask you to, you know, tell our listeners what you mean when you say that. So this goes back to the, um, the why I think of what we do and how we go about our business. Of course, the bigger why is to, as I said, improve and, and deliver quality of life uh, to, to people the world over. But then underneath that, right, there's the tactics of, well, how do you, how do you make your decisions? How do you try to optimize your game plan year by year or over a number of years to, to do that. And, and what are the, the metrics that matter and how does that correlate to shareholder value, shareholder returns, the ownership of the company, right? There's a, a duty, a fiduciary duty to clearly figure that out, articulate it and then deliver for them. So we've done a lot of thinking about that. This starts uh, everywhere from our ownership itself with shareholders weighing in to our board of directors uh, that are, are very sort of astute and, and steeped in capital allocation theory. And the more we thought about this, we came to the conclusion that we're taking a very, I think, different approach from what you typically see in the energy space, where it's not about production growth, it's not about how many wells we drilled, it's not about those types of sort of common traditional metrics. Instead, we are manufacturing, A, right, manufacturing, B, a widget, widget is the methane molecule, and like any sort of manufacturing of a commodity endeavor, you want to be the low cost producer that has some ability to maintain that low cost competitiveness over time. You have a moat, a competitive moat. And then what you want to do is you want to invest capital into that manufacturing process, whether it's people or drill rigs or pipeline infrastructure, 
And you want to be able to manufacture that widget in a way where you're generating substantial free cash flow and particularly free cash flow per share. So, you know, some of this goes to the manufacturing nature of methane. Um, some of this goes to the low cost position that we constantly want to maintain. And some of this goes to the capital that we're investing where we want to make sure that we're getting a sufficient rate of return and we're de-risking that rate of return that we projected and that we're excited about. And that metric, that true north metric is going to be the long-term free cash flow per share growth in our business. And I want to keep emphasizing that per share component of it. So we pay attention to the numerator, what the free cash flow and its magnitude is doing. And we pay attention to the denominator as well in terms of well, what can we do with maybe some capital allocation investment options where we return that capital, that free cash flow to shareholders via buying back our shares, reducing the share count, which reduces that denominator, increases free cash flow per share. So it's a it's very much a philosophy and sort of a toolbox of, of tactics that we can deploy, right, as conditions change. So when gas prices change, we adjust accordingly using that same type of an approach. When well profiles and our views on well profiles change, we adjust, right, consistent with the overall philosophy that I've just laid out. Do you think that your philosophy on uh, the free cash flow is an adopted practice by many in the industry, or is this just kind of a formula for you guys and it's not really wide known or widely known? I think it's a little bit of a, I'll answer that in, in, in two different parts. I think within the industry, the industry is, as we all know, right? It's always been susceptible to sort of the herd mentality. So there's been, phases of time when production growth was the name of the game and everybody rushed to sort of put their flag in the sand as to why they were the best when it came to production growth. Then there was, you know, a time of when NAV was driving, net asset value views were driving things. And then M&A, right, became the rage. Right. Today, I think you do see a lot more companies talking about free cash flow because the capital markets want to hear about that. Right. But you also see the ability to, to view actions over a, a longer period of time, those that actually can deliver it and then also embrace the philosophy. So I do think we are unique in that respect where we've been talking about that, embracing that the longest, the most consistently. Mm -hmm. And we've been delivering that now, I think eight plus consecutive quarters running a free cash flow generation and plan on doing that into the future. Very the good. second Very side good. to this, is that interestingly, when you get outside of energy and outside of E&P, outside of the shale industry, there are one-off instances of companies in particular industries that have embraced this very philosophy. And over the course of three years or five years or 10 years, we're able to deliver tremendous results when it came to shareholder returns. So this is sort of a playbook that might be unique, say within energy or within the shale industry, where we're one of one, but, you know, truth be known, we heavily borrowed this from other sort of examples that are out there in other industries where this very same sort of philosophy and playbook has been run to great success. Very good. You know, I, I, I do think, David, it's worth us trying to look at that formula and processing it and putting it out there. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about ESG uh, and get uh, our listeners all caught up on that. You're listening to on the World Patch Radio Show. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm David Blackman with my co-host, Kim Bellotto, and we're here today with the CEO of CNX Resources, Nick Deulius. Nick, um, 
want to talk about our favorite subject. I know it's one of your favorite subjects, ESG investing, which is such a hot topic of conversation uh, as it relates to the oil and gas industry and other industries. Um, I know you talk about this a lot, and I wanted to just give you a chance to, to, to discuss how your company uh, approaches engaging in this area and 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 you know the 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 high points and the low points of of the impacts uh, this is having on our industry yeah great question massively um large topic that's looming across energy of course but really all capital markets i think as with most things uh of this nature there, there is a you know to, to steal the uh the movie line there's a good a bad and ugly tied to esg investing and we have spent to your point an awful lot of time trying to communicate how to differentiate, right? The good from the bad, from the ugly. First, the easiest is the good side of this. There is no doubt, and it's been proven time and time again across a range of industries in energy manufacturing, anywhere where there is activity that can create a risk with respect to health or environment, et cetera, that the safest, um, the most compliant players in those industries are going to be the low cost producers. They're going to be the most efficient, the most profitable. So. There is an absolute certainty via data and, and experience that great performance on safety, compliance, those types of things equates to great returns, great investment, um, you know, great financial uh, results, no doubt about it. Now, the, the bad side of this is when you get into the ability to ascertain within players who is the good ones, who are the not so good ones, et cetera. That is a, a very complicated endeavor because these processes, these companies and these industries, right? It, it takes a lot of horsepower, pun intended, uh, to be, be able to deliver those types of results on a consistent basis. It's very complicated. So you really have to get into the details, into the weeds. You have to see these types of activities and companies and industries on the ground. And this is the type of a process if you're trying to rank out the best in breed, the best in class, versus the poorer performers, it takes a tremendous amount of sweat and invest in investment of time and, and knowledge. And it is not something that lends itself to easily screening itself onto a spreadsheet or onto something that you can run from afar, whether it's you know on Wall Street in Manhattan or whether it's in California with a, a public pension plan. And as, as enticing as that is to be able to set up a spreadsheet or have a consulting firm or an advisory firm do that, and then through some sort of algorithm, right? Reading through 10Ks or whatever the case might be, spit out a result that says, these are the, out of the 10 car manufacturers, the best when it comes to ESG and the worst, and give it sort of an aura of scientific integrity tied to it. You're kidding yourself. So, you know, from our perspective, we try to embrace that reality between the good and the bad of ESG in a way where our approach to ESG efforts are tangible, right? So we have to be able to measure it with a quantifiable metric it has to be impactful. It's got to be a metric that matters and it's got to be local. You know, it's got to tie directly to the footprint where we operate within, where we live, where our customer base is, that type of thing. And if you stick to that tangible, impactful local, local formula, when you're approaching ESG, you're able to screen out 80% of the noise. 80% of this just gets filtered out and you, you figure out quite quickly, it's not making you better where it really matters when it comes to ESG. Now, the ugly side of this, is what happens, and you've seen this in capital markets for, for eons since there's been capital markets, but what happens when you get this massive amount of attention and demand for something quote unquote with the ESG banner, 
And then you've got all these companies and industries and entities trying to feed into it. Right now you're getting into some of the, the ugly side of things where you're coming up with actually the, the exact opposite intended consequences of what you wanted. And I think we've seen a lot of this in the energy space over the past couple of years. We've seen this um, with respect to Texas, right? We're, we're looking at some cold weather uh, in Texas uh, coming up here soon. And we know what happened last winter. Well, a lot of that risk that was created that created some of the grid integrity problems in Texas was the result, I believe, of sort of the, the ill-founded ESG focus where you're starting to divert capital investments from say weatherization or legitimate grid integrity with respect to natural gas. And now you're shifting that to things like wind power because of the obvious incentives, both you know quantitative incentives as well as qualitative incentives where you're building wind farms that are in West Texas, right? That now have a supply chain, distribution chain, risk tied to them, et cetera. So you're, you're changing the nature of the grid and it's being evolved in a way where it's more under sort of a drive towards some sort of ESG focus or banner versus the legitimate quantitative you know, risk reward assessment. We saw this in California with Pacific Gas and Electric, same type of thing, but over the course of many years where PG&E instead of investing into needed infrastructure, like their transmission lines and keeping those up to up to, to date, they're instead diverting billions of dollars into EV charging stations and you know, the, the renewable projects, et cetera. And that basically meant that the transmission lines weren't in the shape that you wanted them to be in when the wind blew and a 90 plus year old hook broke on one of those transmission lines, wildfires ensued, dozens of people were killed, hundreds of you know, houses, et cetera. Um, and I think, I fear that we're seeing more of these types of sort of ugly examples developing right before our very eyes. I use the example of Boston in Massachusetts as one of the, the better illustrations of this. <laughs> where, you know, you've got Pennsylvania, low cost Marcellus Utica, lowest cost gas field in the world, 400 miles away, where we can simply build a pipeline to New York City Gate, Boston City Gate, whatever the case might be. But from an ideological perspective, the policy is situated in those states where not only do they disincentivize it, they don't allow it. Right. And instead, what you end up with, you'll call it an embracement of renewables or whatever banner you'd want to put it under. But in reality, when it gets cold, like it is right now in Boston, they are importing LNG. And that LNG, mm -hmm. that liquefied natural gas is coming in many instances from places like Russia. Mm -hmm. So what you've done is you've basically traded the ability to rely on 400 mile away, low cost Pennsylvania natural gas in exchange for 4,000 plus mile supply chain away, Russian Putin natural gas. It's almost yeah. like we're trying to replicate in Boston what we did in Germany. Right. Right. See how that's exactly. going to Ukraine. So, you know, that's, that's the good, the bad and the ugly, but the one other sort of bad slash ugly aspect of ESG, it's, it's going from bad and bleeding into ugly is um, a lack of rigor and integrity, transparency when it comes to the carbon and the CO2 accounting. Yeah. So what I mean yeah. by that is, you know, solar and wind, they have tremendous scope one through three carbon footprints and particularly right on scope three, the upstream carbon footprint to make the wind turbine to basically um, build the solar farm. There's a tremendous CO2 footprint. Right. And that, that gets, gets largely uh, ignored. That, that gets, gets ignored, ignored, right? So mm -hmm. it sort of reminds you of, um, of George Orwell, right? Who said that, uh, that some animals are more equal than others. Well, I guess <laughs> some CO2 is greener than others, but I don't think the atmosphere cares where, where the CO2 where? is coming from. CO2 That's is correct. CO2. Yeah. And right. if it's being emitted more with the solar panel, just because the CO2 is emitted in China 
right? Knowing and applying God knows what human rights abuses to manufacture these things or mine this stuff. Right. Then why does it matter from an atmospheric perspective versus a CO2 molecule that's emitted, let's say in Pennsylvania through the development of, of domestic natural gas? Hey, Nick, we're, you know what? Uh, you're talking, David, and, and myself, favorite language. We, we talk about this a lot on the radio. Let's continue this after a commercial break. You're listening to an oil patch radio show, and we'll be right back. We're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Nick, before the break, you were discussing uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly on ESG. And I'd like to give you an opportunity to kind of finish that thought out since we have to take a hard break. On You are right that I don't think the uh, uh, air admissions really care where they're coming from to count them, whether it's China or India, some of the biggest polluters on the planet versus the United States. So let me give it back to you to finish off the thoughts on this this stuff is really not being calculated properly uh, in accordance with how they're monitoring oil and gas versus solar versus wind. What do you think? For sure. Uh, And what's really frustrating about this is that when you're dealing with public companies or uh, capital markets, um, financial institutions, you have a long history of a rigor and, and a set of standards and transparency that's set with expectations when it comes to financial metrics. So when you, you quote or you report a net income or cash flow or EBITDA, now there is a set of standards that goes with that um, part and parcel to the, the reporting of it. And if, if you don't follow those standards, um, then there's repercussions, there's consequences. Everybody acknowledges that because of what can happen with respect to fraud. But when it comes to ESG, and specifically the carbon dioxide sort of math, the the ledger of carbon dioxide. Um, It used to be that it was pretty much just talk and and maybe something that was more of a promotional uh, item in nature versus something that actually drives capital markets and drives investment decisions and drives stock prices for corporations. But today that's no longer the case. Today ESG drives a lot of those things. And to me, it should be met with and reported through a rigor and a process that is on par with EBITDA and cash flow and net income and all these financial metrics, revenues that, um, that clearly um, have a, a set of standards behind them. So I think that um, the capital markets is doing itself a disservice when it comes to ESG and just sort of throwing out these numbers or these, these views of zero carbon, renewable energy, um, et cetera, et cetera, when we know scientifically, mathematically, it is absolutely not true. If we did that with cash flows or EBITDA or net income, there would be severe consequences of that. And I think the time where we put ESG on the same sort of uh, level of rigor is is long past. It's time to to do that now. Um, The second thought on on this ESG issue is that these unintended consequences, they keep exponentially um, blooming in terms of of bigger magnitude. So we talked about California and Boston and Texas, but now what you're seeing with respect to not thinking through ESG and not doing the appropriate analysis, now you're seeing geopolitics really play prominently with respect to this. we talked about um, Russia and Ukraine. That is an energy-driven issue. The, the reason yeah. that Russia feels emboldened to do what they're, they're doing is because of what's happened with respect to Germany and Europe in general, and frankly ourselves, when it comes to sort of the self-inflicted stifling of energy security to no benefit to the CO2 atmospheric concentrations in the environment. What you see with China, if you think through our energy policy, things like the Green New Deal, we're basically trading domestic energy security in exchange for basically a dependency not on OPEC like we used to have in the past, but now a dependency on China 
because of where these materials have to be mined, processed, and manufactured inevitably. So it doesn't make a lot of sense geopolitically, and now you're starting to see the symptoms. Ukraine is a symptom of ESG gone awry, um, not a cause, right? And I think, unfortunately, we will see more of that in the context of a China, in the context of a Russia, as time marches on, if we don't sort of replace the political science with actual science. And I don't know if it's really yeah. replace it. David, I'm going to give you the floor, but I think it's more of, I don't think they quite understand ESG, period. And they don't even understand the energy industry, so that's why they keep making these poor decisions because they, they lack an understanding of it, whereas, the, including the financial markets. David, I'll give the floor to you. Go ahead. Nick, uh, uh, after I wrote uh, a story about you uh, at Forbes a few weeks ago, uh, a former CEO I worked for, Bobby Shackles at Burlington Resources, uh, sent me an email saying that this guy sounds like somebody I'd really get along with. Uh, <laughs> you have, uh, you're very outspoken, as we see today in this interview, and you, you have this uh, robust social media presence, uh, your own podcast, you do a lot of interviews. I want to, want to give you a chance to talk about why um, unlike most CEOs in our industry, frankly, you've chosen to be so active in advocating for your company and, and this industry. Well, it goes back to what, what Kim said. I, it is not my nature. And, and frankly, I've got, you know, out of the 31 plus years I've, I've been in the industry, I've probably got 28 years to back that up. Uh, it is, it was not my nature. It remains not my nature to, to do those types of things, but it is necessary. It is necessary from a leadership perspective. It's necessary from a factual perspective. And frankly, I think it, it, it's necessary from just a, a national or call it patriotic perspective. So what's happened is there's been this misunderstanding, partly because of maybe a lack of knowing sort of what's going on and how things work, but also frankly, because of a very intense sort of long-term um, effort by adversaries or enemies of domestic energy to paint certain things in a certain light, to create certain myths, to fabricate certain mistruths. And now what we're dealing with is you know, you're, you're dealing with consequences that are affecting a whole bunch of different, the full spectrum of stakeholders that I care deeply about. So I go back to the first you know, sort of intro when we were kicking things off about my roots in Western Pennsylvania. I've seen what happened to this region when manufacturing and energy went away. It was devastating, devastating to families, devastating to individuals, devastating to the psyche of a region. The domestic energy industry pays not just family sustaining wages, it pays excessive family sustaining wages. You, you can rebuild the middle class if you just let the domestic energy industry do what it does. So there's <clears throat> lives, jobs, sort of livelihoods, families at stake. You get into the other extreme of the spectrum, right? There are almost 2 billion people on this planet that do not have access to electricity, reliable electricity. Their lives are in a word miserable. And we've got the wherewithal, if you just let science dictate reason, logic dictate, we've got the wherewithal to bring them, to drag them out of abject poverty and into a much better way of life, right? And whether you measure that in life expectancy or infant mortality or individual rights for groups like women, it's just a win all the way around. So you can pick your, your sort of local side of the spectrum and what we've seen with regard to friends and family and et cetera, to the, the broadest global side of the spectrum with regard to 2 billion people who I don't know, but I do know what their lives are like. And there is a moral responsibility to basically put the facts forward and not advocate for your industry because you work in the industry or not advocate for the company because you work for the company, but first and foremost, to advocate for this because it is right. And it is you know, the, the truth versus mistruths or, or fabricated you know, falsehoods. So it's pretty basic, it, it, it's, it's pretty fundamental, but it, is, it looms extremely large over sort of the, the duty and responsibility, I think, of a, of a CEO. Yeah. You know, Nick, uh, 
it was a pleasure interviewing you today, but it was also very refreshing because part of the whole reason why in the Old Patch Radio Show that's nationally syndicated now came to fruition and started was because what you just said, there's so much lack of information, so much lack of truthfulness, and a lot of it comes from other countries, people who are uninformed, uh, foreign adversaries, and it's really cost a lot of damage here in the United States as well as when we think about you know, other countries that are limited as it is, and we're, they're going to get even uh, more limited if this continues. And so I'm glad you came on the show today and, and helped our listeners understand how important it is that the industry start advocating and talking and helping educate, whether it's the financial markets, the elected officials, because they're elected, they don't know anything about energy, they've never worked a day in the industry. It's important that we all do our part to try to help the general population understand how important energy is. It's a matter of life and death, and it really is an important topic, but it's complicated. Um, so on behalf of me and David, thank you for joining us today on the radio show. We look forward to having you back sometime in the future where we can talk a little bit about maybe energy transition or energy evolution. Uh, for sure. Guys. Thanks, Kim and David. Thank you. thank you. In the Oil Patch is where together we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.